If you will, take your Bibles, open those Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 9 and verse 18. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 18, we'll read through verse 27 uh, this morning. As you're holding your Bible, you might notice it's a pretty big book. Uh, the translation that, that I use here uh, has no footnotes of any type, no cross-references of any type to add to the size. Uh, there are approximately 1,550 pages in my Bible. And in those pages, there's, there's a lot of stories. We're introduced to a, a, a lot of characters. Very easy to get lost in the details of this book. It's, it's, it's very easy to get caught up in and, and to become uh, obsessed with things such as prophecy or uh, all of the things associated with the charismatic movement. Even become kind of obsessive, compulsive about all things Calvinistic or not Calvinistic. Okay, You can truly become so focused on secondary issues that you lose focus upon the main issue of the Word of God. And we, we see them revealed for us today in, in, in the form of uh, what I think are, are three absolutely crucial questions. The, the first is, who is Jesus? You better know the answer. The, the, the second question is, what did Jesus come to do? And that's intrinsically tied to the first question. They're, they're locked together. And then there's a third question. And we must answer them. We must answer all three. And this third question is, what are the implications of who Jesus is and what He came to do? That is, how do I respond? How do I respond to receive the benefits for which Jesus died? Three absolutely essential issues. We, we can disagree on some of the subjects that I mentioned and other subjects. But we better agree and we better get right these issues. You, you, you better have this buttoned down and settled within your own heart and mind. Because the reality of where you spend eternity rests on these questions. So let's read, uh, beginning in verse 18, and we're going to think about uh, confession, prediction, and invitation. Verse 18. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, uh, but others say Elijah, and, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for the testimony to your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we do not have to be in doubt as to who He is, as to what He has done, and as to what the implications are for our lives. I pray, God, for the work of your Spirit as you commended Peter so long ago. Uh, Lord, I pray that just as uh, the Spirit of God showed him who you really are, Lord, that you would show us who you really are. That you would be high and lifted up, and God, that we would be trained, transformed by your grace and for your glory. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen Luke unpack for us little by little, bit by bit, person by person, the reality of who Jesus is. We have heard from Gabriel and the angel host that this is the Christ. We have heard from Zechariah and Anna, this is truly the promised one. We've heard Jesus himself speak to the issue of who he is, the anointed one of God sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. We've heard even the demons acknowledge who Jesus Christ is. And so I believe that, that Luke is building us to a, to a great crescendo here in, in, in this particular book to a, to a high point in which he wants to hear from the disciples who it is they have come to believe that this very strange and controversial rabbi is who he is claiming to be. And so let's look and let's begin with what I call the great confession. We find Jesus once again, and again, there's no conflict. He's praying alone. The disciples were with him. You, you don't have to get all wild-eyed about a contradiction in, in Scripture. Jesus had gone to be alone for the purpose of a season of prayer. Uh, the disciples were there uh, around him as he prayed, as an example to them of the necessity of prayer of the centrality of prayer in the life of God's people, even in the life of the Son of God. And so, I suppose at the conclusion of one of his prayers, he determines that it is time to hear what these disciples have discerned regarding his identity. And so, he asked them an initial question here, who are the people that are seeing and hearing what we're saying and doing? Who do they say I am? 
What is the popular opinion? What, what does the man on the street say regarding who I am? And they very quickly volunteer that there is a diversity of opinion regarding who you are. Some would even say that, that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Some would say Elijah. Some would say other uh, prophets, uh, possibly. The reality is what? They were confused. The, the, the ultimately, the, the Spirit of God hadn't so worked in them, even though they had seen a great deal of evidence as to who Jesus was. They still did not have clarity regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. And so then Jesus gets to the real issue at hand because I doubt he was that concerned about what the masses were saying about him. And so he asked them, notice the them there in verse 20, he's asking the, the gathered group, the 12 there, I want to know what you guys think. We shouldn't be surprised that the spokesman for the 12 is the apostle Peter, okay? And so he speaks up, and uh, the way they're, they're, this is in uh, Matthew and Mark, so get, got a little nuance to what is quoted here. Luke says, Peter's answer, you are the Christ of God. That is, you are the promised anointed one sent from God to us. You And the fuller confession, evidently, Matthew records, you are the son of the living God. You, 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 you are the one we've been expected. And Jesus says to Peter, as recorded in Matthew, that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven. Now young people, we talked about the new birth on Wednesday night. That's Jesus' point. Flesh and blood cannot reveal to you the identity of God's Son, it is not a flesh and blood issue, even though logic and reason testifies amply to this is the promised one. This is the Son of God. But ultimately, for a person to enter into the right relationship with the Christ of God, it goes beyond the revelation of flesh and blood. It is a work of the Spirit of God who opens the heart, who prepares the mind, who gives illumination, even life where there's death, so that we can believe unto salvation that Jesus is the Christ who has come into the world for our salvation. Now, I must tell you, I don't think Peter had it all in one basket at this point. Okay? Because... They understood, yes indeed, he is the one promised to David. Their expectations were of a particular type of kingdom. You can see it in their questions. Even after the resurrection, just before the ascension, Luke tells us their question was what? Lord, is it time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? They, they still were a little bit sideways. But Peter and the rest, they're beginning uh, to, to get it. Okay, that, that Jesus, you are unique, you're distinct, you're different from everyone else. You're uniquely sent by God into our world for our benefit. Well, Jesus is going to say something to them that's going to rock their world. In fact, what Jesus says in response to what we see in point one, this great confession and what I call the grim prediction absolutely did not fit 
into their expectations. In fact, it was so outside the, the, their framework that they had for the Christ of God that I don't believe they heard much of what Jesus said. Okay? They didn't get it. And so Jesus relays to them this unexpected command, which is, first of all, we're not going to talk about it. You're correct. I am who you say I am. But we've already had some trouble in this area. There's a group that wants to make me king, and it's a king according to their terms, not a king according to my father's terms. Okay? And so we're not going to get everybody all worked up and excited at this point. Okay? So we're not going to talk about what you've come to know as to who I am. As important as it is, we're not going to talk about it because there's an aspect of the plan that God has had for me before the world was created. It is the purpose for which I came that I need to explain to you even though you're not going to get it. Now, how many things can you think of in the course of your life, maybe something your dad taught you or your mother taught you, that I remember them going over those lessons, but, you know, I finally get it. After 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, I finally get what they were talking about. Well, Jesus told them, but they didn't get it at the time what was going on. And so Jesus makes what's to them this unbelievable prediction. Look there in verse 22. Now again, you are the Christ of God. You are our long-expected king. You are the one who is going to restore the kingdom. You're the one that's going to remove the oppressive regime of the Romans from us. You're going to lead us into a day of unprecedented peace and prosperity. And Jesus says to him, what? The Son of Man, again, a prophetic title, most prominently used in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man receives from the Ancient of Days the kingdom, the coronation. And he says to them, the Son of Man, the Christ, he must suffer many things and be rejected. I'm not going to be received. Yeah, yes, they, they, they want a king. In fact, we know just a few weeks later, he's going to go into Jerusalem, and they're going to be saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our king has come. They're throwing the, 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 the palm branches and the cloaks down before him and all of this stuff. And within hours, they will be saying, crucify him. Crucify him. And so Jesus tells them, I am the Christ. But God's plan for me is far different than what you've got planned. You, you don't understand it. I am going to go, and I'm not going to be welcomed. I'm not going to be received. In fact, I am going to be rejected. I'm going to be rejected by those that should know better. I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I'm going to be re rejected by the academics. I'm going to be reacted, uh, rejected by those that were, the, their offices were designed as a protectorate for my people to lead my people in the ways that I've outlined for them. And yet, what have they done? They've distorted, they've perverted, they have oppressed my people. And so, I'm going to go, and I am going to be killed. I'm going because that's what, God's plan, what the Father's plan is for me, that I would enter into this realm 
and I would be rejected. As Peter himself would preach, that he would enter our world, and according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge, you wicked men would crucify him. And that he would be raised, and that in his resurrection it would be known, it would be proclaimed, not only what Peter said here originally, you're the Christ. In Acts 2.36, what did Peter add to his confession? Let it be known in all of Israel that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Curios, Lord, Yahweh. Yeah. He got it then. He got it. The Spirit of God had come upon him at Pentecost. He put all, the, all of his Jewish training and all of his knowledge of the Scripture, his experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, he was able to put it together at that point. And he understood that, yes, indeed, Jesus wasn't mistaken. Jesus was right in rebuking him that, no, you do not have the things of God on your mind. You have the things of the world, the things of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I came to go to that cross. And on the third day, be raised. And if, if, if they've missed anything, they missed that last point. Why would you worry about Jesus dying if on the third day you knew he was going to be raised from the dead? Do you see what? They, and, and again, you look, you look at the gospel accounts. They were in despair. They, they had lost it all. They did not, that went over their head. Okay? I get it. Things in here sometimes, they go over your head. But you know what God did with what went over the head of the disciples? When the Spirit of God came and worked upon them, guess what? They went, oh my goodness, I got it. I got it. They had an aha moment. And so, the Spirit of God worked in their minds. And they got it. They put all these things that they thought, what in the world is he talking about? My God, man... Oh, wait a minute. Now I see. Now I get it. God has sent him into the world. He is both Lord and Christ. He is, he is the very revelation of God. God incarnate. And he is the fulfillment of every promise to the patriarchs and to David. He is our king. Now, folks, let me look, look again there, there in verse 22. When we speak of the gospel, sometimes there's what I, you might call the gospel prosper, proper, uh, the gospel prime, uh, the implications of the gospel. Fundamentally, when I say gospel, and, I, and again, I nuance it, okay? What did God do in the person of Jesus Christ? That's first and foremost the issue of the gospel, okay? Now, again, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to nuance it here in a minute, but get that the gospel is what Jesus did. What Jesus did is based upon who he is. It would not matter what he did if he wasn't who he said he was, who Peter confessed him as being as uniquely the one sent from God. If he were not the sinless Son of God, his death on the cross would ultimately mean nothing. So identity and accomplishment are tied together. And in his death on the cross, big theological word here, he propitiated the wrath of God. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Now, the good news, in a sense, nuance here, is that the wrath of God is propitiated. 
but it's rooted in a real historical accomplishment of what Jesus did on the cross. That Jesus received in himself the due penalty for our sin, namely the holy and right and just wrath of Almighty God. And then having suffered that death, he demonstrated he was the victor over death by being raised from the dead. And so right there you find, what is the good news? It is the work of Jesus on the cross at Calvary for us. So, it's a grim prediction in one sense, but it's the glorious accomplishment that this is what Jesus came to do, was die in our place. And therein is the, the, the foundation of the gospel, the work of Christ. There's a lot of confusion in churches today. If you go up, if you were to go to any place with a paved parking lot and a steeple and stained glass windows and all that stuff, I want to do an exit poll. Sir, ma'am, youngster, would you please tell me what the gospel is? Well, we should just be nice to one another and, you know, not, not be cruel and not be vicious and you need to know God's a good guy. And all. No. What's the gospel? That this Jesus came into our world and He lived a sinless life and He died on the cross in our place and God raised Him from the dead. Folks, that's the gospel. Get it right. Get it right. So the question... Or the questions, as, we, as I put before you, okay, who is Jesus? Well, he's uniquely the Christ of God. What did he do? He died on the cross and was raised from the dead. He accomplished our salvation. That leads us to the third question. Well, again, it's kind of a, well, so what? What do I do now that I have this information? How is it? that I respond to this. Now again, let me say to the young people in terms of the new birth. I believe, I believe, and, and my hope is that many people hearing the sound of the gospel will be born again. Why do I emphasize the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's the central issue that, 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 that is the core of the imperishable seed of the new birth that should produce in you the new birth. That would make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. And so, what, what, if, it, if it's all supernatural, if, it, if it's all, as you said the other night, it's, it's like the wind. You can't schedule the wind to uh, you know, sail your sailboat next week. Well, what? Well, Jesus tells us how it is that we are to respond. Now, I'm going to, I, I'm going to share something here. Listen to me. It's at this point in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, that we're going to be exposed once again to some of the toughest issues that we face as those who say that we're Christians. I began to wrestle with them within three months of my conversion at 15 years old. Why? Because nobody in the church ever explained these things to me. You know what they told me? You need to sign this card and you need to ask Jesus into your heart. And when you do that, go burn your 8-track tapes and cut your hair. Yeah. And 
Certainly for 20 years, I really wrestled. What in the world are the implications to this? I don't, I don't understand. I, I, and I'll, let me tell you this. I've been wrestling with them for 47 years. And I'm going to say some things to you today and in the next few weeks. If you pay attention, you're going to leave here today and you're going to wrestle with them. And you should. You should. What are the implications to what Jesus said? He certainly didn't say, Peter, you're right. I'm the Christ. I'm going to die on the cross for you. Now ask me into your heart. He did not say that. He categorically did not say that. Nor has any other biblical spokesman ever said that. Jesus said this. He said, Cliff, Cliff Barrow, start singing just as I am. Here's how you're to respond to this. I'm being silly. I know it. Okay. Here's what Jesus said about responding to the gospel. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now notice, notice my little thing there. Roman numeral 3. Now, I was very tempted as I was doing the outline, and I know I did a little cute little alliteration. I don't normally do that. I was initially inclined to call it the Grim Invitation. Seriously. Doesn't sound really inviting to me. Deny myself. I kind of like indulging myself, actually. That's really more what I like to do. I'm, I'm all about Tim's pleasure and comfort. Y'all didn't know that, okay? And it really doesn't sound inviting to take up a cross. That doesn't sound like a particularly pleasant experience. And I really like my own autonomy. Follow anybody. You know, that's tough, tough stuff. But it is, as, as dismal as all of that sounds, Let's get the whole package here. And the first thing that we can say, it is an invitation to all. Now again, I, I believe in particular redemption. But there's also a universal, if anyone would come after me, if you desire to receive for yourself that which I earned at the cross of Calvary, then you come and you deny yourself, you take up your cross and follow me. Now young people, I, here's what I talked about in terms of the new birth the other night. It is something you can't cause. See, the problem in the evangelical church today is they think there's three steps that you can take to cause God to give you the new birth or regenerate you, and that's a lie. It is God who is the cause of the new birth. He is the cause of you being born again. You have the opportunity, and here's the analogy I said, if you go to the beach and you take your sailboat down there and you want to go sailing, you cannot call the folks to the beach and say, I would like a 20 mile per hour wind from the east going toward the west at 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon so I can sail my boat. But if you want to sail, you've got to put the boat in the water, you've got to raise the sail, and you wait for the wind to blow. And when the wind blows, guess what? Off you go. And so there's a sense where what Jesus is saying is raise the sail. You come after me. You get over yourself. And if I could say anything, if I could say anything to the culture today, get over yourself. Yeah. It ain't about you. Church, secular culture, either way. Either way you want to spell it. 
But Jesus said, in raising the sail so the Spirit of God would carry you along into this thing we call the new birth, so that you would be willing to die for me, so that you would be willing to stick close to me, then you raise, it, raise that sail. You deny yourself. You, to whatever degree you can, you set aside your own agenda, you take up your cross, and you stick close to Jesus, the Jesus revealed right here. You pour into your life the imperishable seed of the new birth. And you pray, God, show me. God, raise me from the dead. God, give me the mind that you would have me to, mind, to, to have. God, help me to repent of these sins, Lord, that I, that I, that I love. God, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Why did Jesus say tough things like this? He's going to say some tougher things a little later. It, hey, folks, it doesn't get any better because we're going to finish chapter 9 here before too long, okay? Just so you know. doesn't get any easier. Jesus does not play any nicer. You remember John 6? Jesus said a lot of strange things and a whole bunch of people left. Well, Jesus said a whole bunch of tough things and people left too. That, the reason He says the tough things is so that no one can, can superficially say, this looks like a great party and I want to be a part of it, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into the Jesus thing. He says the way is hard, it is narrow, and it's lonely. Later, Luke is going to tell us, Jesus compares coming to him as like a builder that decides to build a tower. He says, you know what? I better estimate the cost. Talking to one of our young contractors this morning, he's talking about kind of the problem bidding jobs, and maybe you don't start the job for, for a year out. And what, You know what happens? The price of labor and materials goes up and all of a sudden you're, you're pinched on your profit. It's very difficult to estimate the cost. But Jesus says you better be a very careful contractor and you better estimate the cost. Don't take it, don't take it superficially. Don't think that, that I'm going to solve all your problems in this world. In fact, when you come to me, I may aggravate your problems. You may think it's going to heal your broken home and it may fracture even to a greater extent your broken home. Because what did he say? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. If you stand for me. I was talking to, to a young man this week. Got called into the carpet by his boss at work because he wouldn't co the company, company line on uh, all of this craziness in, in the culture. To his credit, he stood, the ground, he stood his ground. It's going to be unpopular. It's going to be difficult and it's going to be more so. And so Jesus says, count the cost. Don't, it, it is not a superficial decision. And, and just as Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood didn't show that to you. Flesh and blood will not deny yourself. It will not take up its cross and it will not follow Jesus. Your flesh will never do it. Oh, you might jump in the pool for a while. But apart from the regenerating grace of God giving you the desire 
to follow hard after Jesus, it will not happen. Why did Jesus lay down the hard commands? So that those that had not been born again, seeing the kingdom of God and its greatness and its glory, they wouldn't bother to come. They wouldn't complicate his life. They wouldn't come and say, hey, we're going to make you king because you fed us. I ain't got time for that. I don't have time for all this silliness that you've got in mind. I came to seek and save that was, which was lost. That's what I came to do. So he laid down the, the difficulties of challenge. And again, that's why I am so absolutely hostile to the decisionism of the last 50 or 60 years. I think it has done damnable damage in the church. Folks, I can talk you into asking Jesus into your heart. I can take any of these children under 12, 13, 14 years old, and I can spend a few hours with them. They'll ask Jesus into their heart and their liver and their kidneys and their everything else. But it has nothing to do with being born again. It has nothing to do with God so quickening, so making alive those who are dead in their trespasses and sin so that they say, all that I want is to deny my sin-sick self and take up this symbol of death in which there is life and I want to stay close to Jesus because He's my only hope. He is my only hope to get home. It's an invitation to all. Again, if you want to be with Jesus, three conditions, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. That's the deal. And I believe this fundamentally. That's all of grace. The only ones that do that are those that are what? Born again. So, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself daily to see your faith. Why do I struggle with this after 47 years? I have to examine myself daily to see if I am going to deny myself, if I am going to embrace that cross, if I'm going to follow Jesus. And folks, I struggle with it every day. Even though it's a settled reality. And if you, t if you give any serious weight to the Word of God, you struggle with it too. So, why is it such a gracious invitation? Let's move down to verse 24. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That is, if you say, my life is mine, I will keep it, you will lose it. If you say, my life is yours, you can have it, you will save it. Very simple. It's paradoxical. You think, oh, listen, I, oh, I'm going to... I'm gonna, guard myself. I'm going to take care of my life. I'm not, I'm, 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 I am the ultimate uh, uh, guard for my life and my soul. You'll lose it. Jesus says what? The only hope for eternal life is in surrendering yourself to me. And then he asks a clarifying question there in uh, verse uh, 25. We'll get into this in more detail later when we look at the, uh, the parable of the rich fool. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing. You end up, as Solomon described, with vanities. A chasing after the wind. If you gain the whole world, if, that, if that's what you choose to do, I will have it all. You can, you can have it all. But it will be at the cost of your soul. 
It'll be vanity. It'll be something that, that does not count. It'll be being rich in the things of the world, but the world is passing away. It's, it's, it's not eternal. There's an old Andy Griffith episode in which this old gentleman finds uh, a deed uh, to some property there in Mayberry made out by the Confederate States of America. Guess what? It was worthless. He had a title that was invalid, just like Confederate money. It's invalid. You can't buy anything with it. It's no good. You can have all that this world has to offer. But this system is going to pass away, and, and it's commodities. And, 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 and the things that we use to transact business, they will all be gone for a new reality. You can gain the whole world, but it will be at the cost of your soul. Verse 26, I call this a definitive warning. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That is, that when you are born again, God so works in you that you graciously speak of him. That's what it means to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That you confess. Billy Graham used to speak about, you know, the, everybody that Jesus called, he called publicly. There is some truth to that. But the problem is, if you associate what it means to believe and confess and to follow is a simple act of walking down an aisle and coming to an altar and praying a prayer, you have missed the point entirely. It's more than a one-time act. In fact, again, if you go back to these initial conditions, they're all in some sense initial, but they're also continuing, particularly the follow me. That is a present tense imperative. That means keep on doing it. The life of the believer is continuous following of Jesus. And there's no way to do it except publicly. That means wherever you go, you're following Jesus. Or you're at the gas station, yeah, I followed Jesus here. Yeah, I'm at, the, I'm, 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 I'm at the restaurant, yeah, you followed Jesus here. Well, I'm at church, I followed Jesus here. You're following after Jesus. And so, Jesus said, this is, this is, this is necessary, it's not a work, and again, I know we got you know folks with the Marine Corps mentality, and you look at this. Mm, I can do this. I can, I can deny myself. I can take up that cross. I'm follow Jesus. I can do it. It is not salvation by your self denial. You're taking up the cross or following. It's not a work. It's a work of grace. It's a work of grace. It is the fruit, not the root. Okay. The root of following Jesus is regeneration. It's the new birth. Okay? It is the cause. Okay? We need, if, if, we, if we get that out of kilter, you're messed up like I was for so very long. How do I know I'm saved? Because I want to get up tomorrow morning and I'm going to think about it. I'm going to say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. I must deny myself. Yes, Lord, I will take up my cross. Yes, Lord, I will follow after you. That's how I know. That's the work, that's him working in me. I would have quit a long time ago. I would have quit a long time ago. 
And then a final thing from the, the text. Jesus says, speaks to this issue that some of you aren't going to die. You're going to see the kingdom of God. I'm going to, I've got some, things, some thoughts on that as we move into the, the next portion of this next week. But it's very enigmatic. I, I, I'm not sure what it means. i got some thoughts. But this was a great promise. That those who were born of the Spirit of God, the promise is what? They will see the kingdom. And so very, very quickly, the call is universal. If anyone. If anyone. And there's been a lot of confusion. Oh, this was the call to those 12 disciples. No, it's to everyone that would ever have eternal life. Oh, no, it's, to, it's, it's not just getting enlisted in the army. It's joining the special forces. No, let me tell you something. A believer is a disciple, and a disciple is a believer. There's no such thing as being, I'm, well, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but I'm surely not a disciple. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you must be a follower. So let's make sure... Jesus has preached the gospel and he's spoken of the essential issues related to what it means to participate in the benefits that he earned through his work on the cross. And it's only possible by God's gracious initiative in you. By becoming a new creature. By becoming a new creature. Again, anybody can pray a prayer. Anybody can sign cards. Anybody can come down the house. If you're a master communicator and know how to twist a knife in anybody, you can make it happen. That ain't what Jesus is trying to do. He's saying, you better think about it. You want to come to me? You better think about it. You better think about it long and hard. Because it's tough. But let me tell you something. When the Spirit of God grabs your sail, you'll come. And you'll say, this is the only way. It's tough. It's costly. It's difficult. Sometimes it's frustrating. It's the only way I can think of to live. The only way that I can think of to live. Well, who is Jesus? Well, He is the Christ. He is uniquely the one who could do what He said He would do. That is, be rejected and die and be raised on the third day. Why? For our salvation. And He says, if you would enjoy what I earned on that cross, then come follow me. That's what it, that is not a contradiction of our emphasis upon... Uh, Salvation by grace through faith, of the, the Reformation slogans, the great solas, any of that. You will follow me by God's grace. God will take the initiative in your life, and you will come hard after me, and you will recognize that I am what? Both Lord, I am your God, and I am your King. I am Christ. So come. Who am I? What did I do? And how do I respond? Well, I think there's clarity. Is there difficulty? Yeah. Yeah. If I live another 62 years, I'll still be struggling with this. I'll be 124, but I'll still be struggling with it. Because it's hard stuff. But it's essential stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy, for your love for us for this gracious invitation that we could escape the vanities of life without you and we could gain eternal life. I understand there's, a great, there's both a difficulty in understanding and there's certainly a difficulty in living out the implications. God, by your grace, only by your grace, 
by your grace. May we follow after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.